listening to the Conversations Speaking With podcast. I'm William Isdale. Every day we're bombarded with ads that try to sell us things, with the implicit promise that purchasing them will make us happy. Find your eternity. Conquer the anxiety of life. What if I could take you higher, push you farther? What if I could promise you the world? Then, would you believe in magic? We're talking now about a different conception of the good life, which is much more associated with modernity as a society, orienting ourselves gradually, carefully, slowly, in a slightly different direction, slightly less materialistic, less individualistic, less consumerist, where we rethink our values and try to embrace values that perhaps will give us more satisfying lives. Emrys Westacott is a professor of philosophy at Alfred University in New York State and the author of The Wisdom of Frugality, Why Less is More, More or Less. I talk about the concept of frugality and the concept of simple living, and those two run together. The most obvious concept of frugality, the most obvious meaning of it, is simply living within your means, living cheaply, husbanding all your resources and that kind of thing. And from time immemorial, that has been considered a virtue. It's better than being a wastrel or a gambler or whatever. But there's a battery of other concepts associated with simple living. And so, for example, one concept of simple living is to get your happiness out of the simple pleasures of life. Another concept is to be self-sufficient, like Robinson Crusoe. Another concept is to be living close to nature, like Thoreau in his cabin at Walden. Another concept is to live ascetically, like monks and hermits. So those are you know, some of the uh, most important notions of simple living. And out of the Western tradition of philosophy, there's a number of philosophers who've advocated the simple lifestyle. Putting aside those religious arguments that might be associated with asceticism, for instance, what are the main reasons that you see coming up over and over again in the history of ideas about frugality? I would say there are two categories of argument. There are moral arguments and there are arguments concerned with happiness. The moral arguments are that living simply removes you from temptation, which is one of the reasons why, for instance, liberal arts colleges in the 19th century in America were founded in fairly remote rural locations to keep the students away from womanizing and gambling and this kind of thing. Of course, now it means there's not much to do in these towns and so the students take a lot of drugs and (laughs) drink a lot of beer. There's also the, the argument that living simply fosters certain virtues. It fosters hardiness, being able to cope with adversity, being of use in a crisis and this kind of thing. And generally speaking, it's still true that we think that people who live simply, especially if they don't have to, we do think of them as uh, some, you know, morally praiseworthy. I'll give you an example. Warren Buffett, one of the richest men in the world, lives in the fairly ordinary house that he bought in Omaha in, uh, I think, 1957 or something. And people see this as a, a mark of wisdom and virtue. Or Pope Francis who was famous for when he lived in uh, Buenos Aires. He uh, you know, lived in a little apartment where he scrambled his own eggs, and he didn't have to. He could have lived in a palace with servants. And so people take this as a, as a mark of even saintliness. One of the ancient philosophers that was particularly interested in character was Aristotle. He's associated with the idea of virtue ethics. 
So what is it about living simply, though, that is virtuous? And conversely, what about an extravagant lifestyle is not so morally laudable? Well, it's interesting you mention Aristotle, because Aristotle is the exception that proves the rule. Aristotle is not so enamored with asceticism or frugal simplicity as most of the other philosophers in the tradition, the people I call the frugal sages. Aristotle, he tends to be a little bit closer to ordinary thinking on this. Aristotle says, look, to live a good life, to to live a happy life, to flourish as a human being, you need lots of things. You need some good luck. You need to live a long time. It's no good. You can't be you die of sickness when you're in your 20s or something. That's not the good life. And he says you don't need to be fabulously wealthy, but you don't want to be in poverty either. You need to be comfortably off so that you don't have to work like a dog for a living all your life and so that you can enjoy leisured activities which fulfill your human potential. For instance, the exercise of reason, the love of culture and science and this kind of thing. So Aristotle is aware of the fact that there's a possible objection to being too frugal and that is that it could induce ungenerosity which is a vice. Aristotle likes to locate all the virtues between two extremes. For example the virtue of courage lies between the extreme of recklessness which is kind of too much courage, courage without wisdom, or cowardice which is a lack of courage. For Aristotle generosity is a virtue And if you don't have enough of it, if you lack it, that's the the vice of ungenerosity. If you have too much of it, then that's kind of foolish. That's foolish profligacy, which is not as bad as ungenerosity, but it's still not as good as just the nice balance. Well, you point out that there are sometimes circumstances where a degree of magnificence is morally expected of us. Tell me about some of those examples. (laughs) Aristotle is unusual in this. He says, look, as he goes through his list of virtues, he says, there is a virtue which he calls magnificence. What is it? It's the virtue of using your wealth for something beautiful and something of public value. For instance, in his day, perhaps funding a temple or some public games or public festival or something like that. Today, you might think of, say, the Bill and Melinda Gates Fund funding um, research into the cure for malaria, something like that. But Aristotle doesn't say that magnificence is a virtue that we can all practice. It's not. It's a virtue that can only be practiced by the few who are really do have the means. Like every other virtue, it lies between two extremes. A lack of magnificence is where someone, um, let's say they they do, say, build a temple or something like that, but they're niggardly. They they cut corners and shortchange things, and so what results is nothing very pleasing. The opposite extreme is, um, is vulgarity. A good example would be, for instance, someone who built um, great big gold-plated skyscrapers with their name emblazoned on top. That would be an example of vulgarity. Billions and 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 billions. It's interesting, though, that, I mean, take Donald Trump, for instance. A significant portion of the American population think that it is perhaps morally a good thing or something to applaud in him when he says that he's very wealthy. Do you think that there is an element of our society thinking that people who are very wealthy have been successful and that that's laudable? Uh, No question there is. There's millions of people who, without doubt, they admire Donald Trump because he's very wealthy. 
part of that is just that we do live in a, in a time when wealth is admired, but that's not unique to our age. I mean, even back in, in Aristotle's day, you know, people have always admired wealth. You only have to read the Bible on Solomon's wealth to know that people did praise wealth. Or you go back to Homer, and he praises the wealth and greatly admires the wealth of, of Agamemnon and Menelaus and these people. The fact that millions of people do look up to Donald Trump because he's wealthy doesn't mean that he's entitled to their respect. I mean, they may be mistaken. In America, and I don't know about Australia, but in America there is unquestionably a very pervasive myth of meritocracy, that everyone sort of more or less gets where they are by dint of their own virtues, their own merits. It really is a myth. A fairly high proportion of the 400 richest people in America simply inherited their wealth. Or sometimes they didn't inherit it, but they got it by pretty sleazy means, like you know, Vladimir Putin or something like that. So, so yes, people do admire the wealthy, but the wealthy aren't always entitled to that admiration. So if we come back to the reasons for frugality, we've talked a bit about the character or virtue ethics reasons. What about the prudential reasons for frugality? Right. Th- these are actually more common in the philosophical literature, I think. And probably one of the most important would be the Epicurean argument that the most important things in life are actually fairly cheap and simple. I think this is a very powerful argument. For Epicurus, a really, really good day would be to spend some time reading and writing, perhaps spend some time pottering in the garden where he lived, and then in the evening have nice, simple dinner bread, cheese, wine, and really good conversation with friends. And that's Epicurus's idea of a really, really good day. Now, it's true that many people kind of want more out of life than that. They want a little bit of excitement and adventure and variety and this kind of thing. And yet, I would put it to anyone listening, that it's still true that most ordinary people would sacrifice everything they possess and every dollar or cent that they've got to save a loved one to preserve a loving relationship or a friendship. Nothing is more important than friendship and love, and that's why Epicurus says the most important ingredient for happiness is friendship. So that's one very powerful argument. Other arguments would be, for instance, that um, a healthy relationship to nature is an important ingredient in human happiness. Uh, Thoreau is a big champion of this argument, but it's, it's really made a big revival in, in recent times with environmentalist movements and this kind of thing. I tend to be very sympathetic to that argument. I know that some people are skeptical. Some people say, oh, you can be perfectly happy you know, living indoors most of the time in, in an urban jungle. But I don't think so. I think it causes kinds of alienation and depression. So I'm, I'm sympathetic to that argument too. Another argument is that there's a great satisfaction in being self-sufficient. And in my own trivial little case, I do have a little vegetable garden, and I don't grow all my own vegetables, but I proudly declare that I'm self-sufficient in garlic, onions, and potatoes, and it does give me (laughs) some satisfaction. Can you tell me a bit about Thoreau's experiment in living and what he took away from that experience? Yeah, Thoreau's book, Walden, is a wonderful book. Some people find it boring, but I, I think it's beautifully written, and I think that... One of the things I took away from reading Walden is it it encourages us to slow down and to pay attention to very ordinary things, mundane things in the world around us. In his case, it's, it's the natural world. 
In this, he's very similar to some of the Stoics, um, Stoics like Seneca and Cicero. They made a point of saying, you know, yes, you can have misfortune, you can be exiled, you know, like uh, I think Seneca was exiled to a little island for a time. But he said, wherever you are, you can look at the stars at night. Wherever you are, you can study the nature around you. And there's no limit to how satisfying that can be. At the Writers' Festival at Byron, where I've been, I went to a, um, I shared a panel with a, a guy called David Haskell, who is a um, professor of biology in Tennessee, and he wrote a book. It was about how for a year he went almost every day to a square meter of forest near his home in Tennessee and simply sat there and observed and made notes. And I think that's very Thoreauvian, and it's very inspiring. It actually makes me want to go back to my own little plot, my own little garden, and say, yeah, you know, there's so much of interest and beauty in the most mundane bits of the world. Every day, all of us are bombarded with adverts, visual, audible adverts. And in the majority of those cases, what they say is, you want to be happy, then you need to spend money on this item, on this adventure, on this service. And it's not true. You really, really can get tremendous satisfaction out of activities that don't cost money. And we all know that because probably if I, if I was to ask my students who I engage with all the time, if I say, what is your favorite activity? Do you know what the most common thing is? It's hanging out with my friends. By far and away, as some people put sleeping, <laughs> but a lot of people say hanging out with my friends. It's still probably the number one favorite activity in the world for most people. Well, you've just spoken about how for many of your students and for yourself, a happy, fulfilling life could be spending time with friends, pottering around the garden. But another conception of a good life would be trekking in the Andes, bungee jumping in New Zealand, playing the tables at Monte Carlo, skinny dipping in a thermal pool in Iceland. And, and that sounds very appealing to me as well. So uh, none of it's cheap. So is that idea of the good life mistaken for some reason? No, I don't think so. The chapter that you are quoting from is the chapter where I say, okay, all the frugal sages have been saying that the good life is the simple life, but there are problems. And in fact, there are things to be said in favor of forms of extravagance. Now, we're not talking, when we talk about extravagance now, we're not talking about living way beyond your means and racking up credit card debt. That's stupid. We all kind of know that, and Benjamin Franklin told us that. We're talking now about a different conception of the good life, which is much more associated with modernity. One where you're not interested so much in accumulating lots of material possessions, but you are interested in a rich diversity of experience. I think this is uniquely modern, because I think that for the vast majority of people, before the advent of, let's say, the 20th century or even the late 20th century, for the vast majority of people, it would be enough for them to survive until they were 70 years old, to not die in a famine, to not die in a war, to not die of disease, to not lose most of their children to disease or famine or war, to not be subject to terrible oppression, to not have absolutely awful jobs that broke their backs and, and destroyed their souls. If you could get through life with a moderate amount of comfort and, and um, an avoidance of, of misery and, and pain, you'd done pretty well and you'd be buried in the country churchyard close to where you were christened and got married. You know, it was a very simple life and you didn't have much in the way of expectations beyond that. Nowadays, 
with many people having higher incomes and the recreational and vocational opportunities for us all being so much greater, we, um, we really do have higher expectations. And so the same students who say to me that their, their favorite activity is to hang out with their friends, if I describe to them the, the pottering life of an Epicurus and say, is that good enough? They'll say no. They want more out of life. They want to make their mark on the world. They want to experience the kinds of adventures and travel and this kind of thing. And so I think that uh, to adjust ourselves to the modern world with all its greatly expanded opportunities, I think we do have to say there's a limitation there on the traditional philosophy of frugality. There aren't very many um, poor people who are giving up on the dream of being rich, and there's not very many wealthy people who are trying to give away their millions to live a more frugal lifestyle. Doesn't that reveal something about perhaps, even though you can be happy on less, it's even better if you can have more? It's a good question. And, but I wouldn't say that everyone votes with their feet in the same way. For example, some wealthy people I know, what they do with their wealth is buy a second house in the country or by the coast or something like that, which is their bucolic retreat. And now it's true it requires money to do that, but if you notice what they're doing with their leisure time then and with their retirement is actually opting for a fairly simple life in a little country retreat. So I think, I think that's one thing to bear in mind. I think another thing to bear in mind is simply the huge amount of cultural pressure that we are under every day, bombarded by the advertisements, bombarded by the movie images, by the TV images, and all the rest of it. We are under that pressure to not just become wealthy, but to display our wealth. I mean, one of the main ways in which a person can get recognition and respect and esteem, and which is something that most ordinary people do desire, is to be wealthy. But it's not enough to be wealthy. If you want the respect the, and the recognition, you've got to display it. That's why there's a market for Rolex watches. I mean, what's the point of paying $30,000 for a watch? The only reason you'd do that is to show people that you've got $30,000 to spend on a watch and hope that that gives you some kind of status. I like that your book takes the objections to frugality and simple living seriously. And one of the best objections, I thought, was the culture argument. Explain that one. Right. I, um, a way of putting it is this frugal simplicity is all very well but who would really wish that the medicis of the italian renaissance had lived simply and frugally if they had then none of us would bother going to italy to see the fantastic architecture in florence or venice or anything like that and um, that argument can be extended tremendous number of the um, the great sort of cultural wonders of the world, the pyramids, the terracotta warriors, the Taj Mahal, the palace at Versailles, the Sydney Opera House, which I was visiting just the other day, are actually, um, you could say, they're extravagances. In some cases, like the case of the pyramids, what they are is basically memorials to dead fat cats with big egos. <laughs> so that's a powerful argument. And it's not just architecture. You can think, for instance, of the um, music of Haydn and Mozart and, and like. Well, these people were employed by aristocrats to write symphonies and concertos and dance music for their social gatherings. Again, anyone who hires a, um, a symphony orchestra for, you know, and hires their own composer, that's pretty extravagant by most people's standards, but we can be grateful for it now.
another prudential argument in favor of extravagance is that it's good for the economy. And if everyone lived a frugal lifestyle, only bought what was necessary, many, many people would be out of a job. Right, and that is an important argument. At, towards the end of the book, I consider uh, one or two arguments that the, the tradition that I call the frugal sages couldn't be expected to really consider. Our modern economies are much vaster and more complicated than used to be the case. And it's true. If everyone sort of read the first bit of my book and put it down and said, right, I am now cutting out unnecessary consumption. I'm going on a big financial fast, right? And if this went viral the world over, it's true that economies would collapse because suddenly no one would be going out for meals, right? No one, the tourist trade would disappear, right? And so there would be overnight millions uh, losing their jobs and that would not be a good thing. This is a very powerful consideration. I don't think it's a absolute sort of knockdown objection to the philosophy of frugality. For this reason, that I think, first of all, it's not going to happen. Secondly, it's very different from this kind of thing happening overnight to us as a society, whether national or international, as a society, orienting ourselves gradually, carefully, slowly, in a slightly different direction, slightly less materialistic, less individualistic, less consumerist, where we rethink our values and try to embrace values that perhaps will give us more satisfying lives. And we do this in a, in, a, um, in a considered way. The crucial thing here is employment. I mean, it, the only problem is what if, every, what if lots of people lose their jobs? It's a miserable thing to be unemployed. There's a very, very high correlation between employment and depression. I actually think there is a long-term solution to this. And I think the solution lies in two things. One is, but through public policy, making sure that people can be freed from certain anxieties. If you're free from the anxiety that you won't have enough money for your old age, and that you can be freed from that with a good state pension, freed from the anxiety that you won't be able to pay for health care, you can be freed from that with a good national health service, right? And then if there are excellent public facilities, I mean, as well as that free, ed, you know, free or very cheap education, if there are libraries, if there are museums, there are parks, there are public gardens, if you've got all that there's less incentive for people to say, I need tons of money. In actual fact, you could say, you know, in this society where there's a decent welfare state and, and well-provided public services, you don't need a huge amount of money. That's one key, I think. The other is this, that we are rich, you know, the United States, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, Britain, these are rich societies. Uh, there's a lot of wealth swishing around. And I think that um, the only problem is there are millions of people who don't have enough work, and there are quite a lot of people who are overworked. And in addition to some redistribution of wealth, I think we should look into the possibility of a redistribution of work to make sure that there's meaningful work for everyone to do. So I do think in the long term, moving in these directions is moving in the direction of a more rational society. Emrys Westcott, thank you so much for speaking with The Conversation. Well, thank you very much. I enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to the Speaking With podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, TuneIn Radio or Stitcher. And please leave a comment or review. We love to hear from you.